0: Welcome, everyone, to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. For this episode, we are going to discuss the Transfer Portal. A new term has been thrown out. I am not claiming it. It's called portaling uh, because plenty of student-athletes across all sports have done it, and I'm pleased to be joined by Susan Peel. She is the Director of Governance with certainly a hyper-focus on the Transfer Portal and Lydia Bell, she is the Associate Director of Research, both at the NCAA. So I want to go back, take us to the present and where we're going, uh, because there's been a lot of changes, certainly in the 30 years, yes, I'm dating myself, the 30 years that I've covered college athletics on transferring from sitting out to you couldn't within your conference to a 424. I mean, all the, the numbers that were thrown around. Uh, in the past about transferring. So let's go back a little about um, sort of the history of uh, transferring. Uh, Susan and Lydia, and you can sort of chime in and have a conversation about this about w- where did this initially this sort of wave, when when did it really start to where it was acceptable um, to transfer within the the guardrails of the NCAA?
1: All right, I'll go ahead and start out. Thank you, Andy. Um, I, I think it is important to go back in history when talking about the transfer portal, because if we go back to 2018, um, that is when the NCAA legislation for Division I did change from permission to contact to notification of transfer. So, what does that mean? Well, you know, at that time when we were under the permission to contact legislation, Institutions could deny student athletes that permission to just speak to another coach, um, or they could go ahead and allow that, and they could even say you can speak to X institution but not why institution um, so they could pick and choose also um, so that, that was really you know the, the premise of then the change to notification of transfer which then allowed that student athlete to just say I am going to talk uh, to this other coach um, and the school could not block that in any way now at that time
0: Susan, let me, let me yes. interrupt you for one yes. second because I'm glad you brought that up because there was a point and I remember this very vividly, where those student athletes, different sports, not just one, uh, would then go public. And the court of public opinion was always on their side. And the coach would stand on that hill and say, you're not going to talk to that, you know, uh, that school, and then eventually would cave. And it became this sort of back and forth. Uh, in the court of public opinion once that student athlete went public that ultimately I felt like it had to lead to a change. And I'm curious from your vantage point, and then Lydia, if you can jump in just how much that did eventually change the tide of the legislation.
1: Yeah, exactly. And that did change the tide of the legislation. And that's exactly why we do have the transfer portal today because again if we were going to uh, you know open this up where student athletes could speak to coaches then how would a coach know that uh, he or she could speak to that student athlete and, and be in compliance with the legislation of the notification and transfer so basically the process was very simple where the student athlete would notify the compliance administrator the compliance office at that institution say hey I I want my notification to transfer. I want to enter the transfer portal and the transfer portal. Really? It's not the legislation. It's it's the mechanism um, for our compliance administrators to manage that transfer process from start to finish. And for when the coach looks in the transfer portal to know, all right, I see that name, that means I can speak to that student athlete. I don't see the name, then the student athlete has not requested the notification of transfer. And it really is that simple, as far as from the transfer portal side, there's very limited information. In that notification of transfer that the coach actually sees. Um, now, as I mentioned, it's a compliance tool, so there's a wealth of information uh, in the transfer portal that the compliance administrator manages because that's going to be the individual who ultimately, um, you know, certifies the eligibility of that student athlete and they need everything from academic history to participation history to know how many seasons remaining, did the student transfer previously, Uh, just a lot of information. Your turn, Lydia.
2: I think what's really important to what Susan just said, um, and some misconceptions about the transfer portal, you know, there is, as Susan said, there's a wealth of information, but there's a wealth of information that would benefit a compliance director. Um, There is not athlete stats built into the portal. A coach cannot look at the transfer portal and say that they're looking, you know, they're looking for a point guard. There's, that's not in the portal. You can't search by position. Um, There is nothing to see minutes per game or none of that stuff is actually in there. Height and weight, not. Not part of the transfer portal. And I think what's interesting is so often, um, you know, even just this past week, Jeff Goodman, you know, posted something that had, you know, all the men's basketball players in the transfer portal. And appended to that were names, institutions, and a bunch of stats height, weight, you know, minutes per game. That's not from the transfer portal. Someone else you know, appended that, but that's not something that is visible to coaches. And I think that's a, that's a huge misconception. The other misconception, as, as Susan was just saying that, you know student athletes have to ask to be entered into the transfer portal. They have to meet with compliance. and then that compliance individual has, it's, it's, it's believe it's 72 business hours to enter that student athlete into the transfer portal. A student athlete does not wake up in the middle of the night, decide they don't like their school anymore, and then they just enter themselves, and I think part of the narrative around um, in the media around the transfer portal is this idea of students entering themselves into the portal as if it's a, a rash act and it's, it is a conversation with compliance and the compliance Um, staff member, that's who enters a student athlete into the portal. Students don't enter or withdraw themselves from the portal. They actually don't have access to the portal itself. Um, It's a compliance tool. So those are two misconceptions I think are really important um, to to really help unpack for people Um, because if you just read what's in the media, um, you might not understand the real mechanisms behind the scenes.
0: All right. So I I do want to sort of dumb it down in a second here because I want to really just Lay it out. But I just want to circle on one quick thing, um, Susan, is that the, the the transferring within leagues, because I mentioned this at the top, because there was multiple alliteration, you know, there's sort of uh, multiple changes within what was allowed. Um, help us explain the rules from the membership, i.e. headquarters, if you will, Indy, Versus how rules within leagues can be different, uh, and sort of what supersedes because some leagues still to this day won't let you transfer within. You know, some took some time to change that. Um, You know, so how do you square that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and probably very confusing um, for the for the student athlete because again, when we look at it's two parts: it's first notification and transfer, being able to actually talk to other coaches. And then it's, can I be immediately eligible upon transfer? And what then eventually years later changed in Division One was the one-time transfer exception to allow um, for those sports that did not have the one-time transfer exception uh, to take advantage of that. And so that gets to your question. So when when the actual transfer rules changed, um, then it was up to then the the conferences to decide because they had intra-conference rules to decide how they were going to apply um, that that conference policy. And some conferences immediately changed their policy and uh, they no longer had the restrictions on intra-conference transfers. Um, I'm not sure how many conferences out there still do have the intra-conference transfer rules.
0: Yeah, I think if I'm not mistaken, last time I checked, I think it's either one or two. So it's dwindled down to almost um, zero. You know, you brought up another great point about, um, uh, you know, this decision process, uh, you know, Lydia. So let's let's really get at its base. Um, so a player, uh, you know what? I, I do want to bring back one thing, though, because the, in the discussion this of allowing this one-time transfer, uh, I do want to clean this part up. I remember a year or two ago, it was during the pandemic, there was discussion about not allowing – Freshmen to do this, and I remember Purdue head coach Matt Painter was very adamant about this. That you know, freshmen they just got there. Let you know, it's a rash decision. So, if you can, if both of you can speak to this, just what was the the thinking in not even going down that path to not muddy that up? That just to make it that if you make that decision, and we'll get to the actual steps, uh, you're allowed to do it regardless of your grade.
1: Well, I I think too, and and Lydia can jump in. I mean, there are all kinds of concepts um, being discussed when, um, you know, the change in the actual transfer legislation to be immediately eligible uh, was proposed. And uh, so, you know, what what you just said obviously didn't stick. And, you know, with with all of this, there are always legal concerns that you have to look at um, and, you know, placing restrictions, would would we uh, put ourselves at least? legal risk from a membership standpoint. So I don't know if you have anything, Lydia, because I know that, you know, Lydia was probably involved in the academic side of of everything uh, with transferring. Yeah. The
2: only thing I was going to say is that, you know, Undergraduates generally, I mean, if you look at the data for college students across the country, um, data suggests that about a third of all undergraduates at some point transfer institutions. Um, and the data that we have specific to student athletes, actually, we find that student athletes are less likely to transfer than their non-athlete peers. Um, and that's something that's, you know, true across the three divisions in the NCA. There, there are differences by sport, um, of course, but we do see in general student athletes are transferring at lower rates.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'll typically,
2: just say, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say that typically most students, you know, they're at their best advantage transferring at the end of their freshman year or at the end of their sophomore year because one of the biggest risks in transferring is that you want to be able to, you know, when, at your new institution, there's oftentimes you want to make sure that the credits you have are transferable. And for someone who is, you know, further along in their major, someone who's transferring at the end of their junior year, many institutions they're going to have to you know take additional classes you know to to make up for you know their their current major of choice upon transfer so a student's all it's almost academically beneficial to transfer at the end of your freshman year or at the end of your sophomore year Um, really thinking about someone's progression and their time to degree um, you know that's it's actually a smarter suggestion if i was an advisor to an undergraduate i would encourage a freshman or a sophomore to consider transfer i wouldn't be as you know, academically encouraging to a to a junior or to a senior, especially um, just because it's really hard to, to complete your degree um, when you suddenly have to change schools and take all new courses. So, um, you know, the, the transfer. Um, committee definitely thought about, you know, different restrictions about, you know, what year in school someone could transfer. But a lot of the data that we had suggested that over three quarters of student athletes are transferring prior, you know, transferring by the end of their sophomore year. It's, it's very, it's much more rare for students to transfer at, the, at their junior year or senior year. Um, yeah. graduate, graduate transfers aside.
0: Yeah, and we're going to get to that in a second. I mean, I would just say, as a parent, uh, in that, this stage of life, I can't tell you how many times I come across fellow uh, parents who, you know, their kid went to a big school and they realize it's too big and they want to go to a small school or vice versa, or this, you know, they change their majors. So yes, it does happen to the general student body quite a bit. I can already, I have plenty of examples just in my life of, of friends whose kids have ultimately transferred after their freshman or sophomore year Mm -hmm. before they're deeper into their major. All right. So let's walk through the steps. Let's start with you, Lydia. I'm a student athlete, regardless of sport. I want to transfer for whatever reason, playing time, not happy, coaching change, big school, small school, more, you know, you name it. First step, what do I do?
2: (laughs) Well, Andy, I'm in research. I'm not sure that I'm the best person to answer that. I, I think the most important thing before someone is, you know, when they're contemplating transfer, you know, as someone who used to be a faculty member at a campus and an academic advisor, I think it's really important to, to ask yourself first, you know why why you're considering transfer, and to really get your your um, information answered before you speak with your compliance um, director about the uh, idea of entering the transfer portal. Um, you know where might you want to go? What kind of degree program are you looking for? You know what some su- sort of parameters do you want to set for yourself? So I think it needs to be both an an academic decision, a personal decision, maybe chat with your family, um, but really before you take into account only athletics, I think that's a really important piece. Um, is to really better understand you know what are the implications, um, particularly if you're a student athlete entering the transfer portal, um, you know we just published a dashboard yesterday um, that the, that student athletes or their families, anyone in the public can use um, to look at, you know, what are the outcomes for student athletes who enter the transfer portal. Um, Because not all student athletes who enter the transfer portal, um, transfer to another NCA member institution. Um, Some of those students may leave their sport, some of those students may transfer to a junior college, we obviously can't track them in the portal because it's an NCA only tool. Um, But you know, for a student athlete who has an athletic scholarship. One of the risks of potentially entering the transfer portal is that the institution um, can cancel their aid at the end of the um, ac- at the end of the academic semester um, or the academic term. And so for a student to enter the portal, um, you know to be really confident that they do want to transfer because they could be you know risking their athletics aid I, I just think, Having some of those questions, you know, reviewing um, there's a you know, want to transfer page on the NCA research site uh, or the NCA um, resource site for student athletes. just think it's very important to better understand the process and the potential risks um, that, are, that are involved when someone does enter the transfer portal. Susan, I'm sure you've got better ideas. For
0: yeah, all right, so well, Susan, walk me through it. Well, <laughs> I was just going to say. It's really good information as an overall base. I appreciate that. Thank you, Lydia.
1: And yeah, Lydia said a key word risk. Uh, you know, our student athletes do have to understand, just like any student, there is a risk in transferring where the student athlete uh, has even a more of a risk is potentially can lose that scholarship. And and we have the numbers to show how many student athletes who enter the transfer portal who's on, they are on athletics aid and they don't end up at another institution or end up at another institution not on Athletics Aid. We can track all of that information. So just to get back to your original question, Andy, I mean, you hope that the student-athlete has communication with the coach first before even going to the compliance administrator. Um, I do know that's not happening everywhere, but you hope there is that relationship. Uh, And then it's going to the compliance administrator, asking for your written notification of transfer. And then the student athlete, if um, the one-time transfer exception is gonna be used for immediate eligibility, that student athlete does have to go through an educational module um, and uh, be certified that they have gone through that module and it, it speaks to what Lydia just said, you know, it talks about the transfer hours and is, is this really what you want it want to do to make them pause and really think you know okay so before any of their entry into the transfer portal that has to happen and then it's as simple as compliance enters a student athlete in the transfer portal student athlete receives an automatic email saying you've been entered and then Open, you know, to to speak to any coaches uh, that the student athlete wants to speak to uh, at that point. And then we track that student athlete uh, if that student athlete does transfer. So then the record is um, marked as matriculated. Uh, so then at that point, nobody can talk to that student athlete unless the record shows as active because there's many student athletes in the transfer portal. the record either shows matriculated or withdrawn, which means they decided to either not continue the process and speaking to coaches, or um, they return back to their institution on a roster uh, that next academic year.
0: So who can see the transfer portal?
1: Only our NCAA member institutions um, can have access to the transfer portal. And then there's different access levels. Like we said, it's very complex with compliance because all they have to do in managing the transfer process and what they have access to. uh, Our coaches, uh, you know, really do have just really their name, uh, you know, whether they were on Athletics Aid or not, uh, whether they're potentially going to be a grad student uh, or undergrad. Um, and their contact information, as far as only an email address, is all that's all they have in, the, in their sport. Um, so for coaches, very limited access. For compliance administrators, uh, they have a lot of information available it, to, to certify that student athletes' eligibility. And as Lydia um, talked about, student athlete does not have access.
0: What this, academics, you know, was, what, sorry, Lydia? Sorry. What academics are listed? Um, well,
2: the, the academics that are that are in the portal um, for our student athletes are you know there's a lot of uh, you know, information about the course, like their overall credits that they're bringing over. Um, but that is really on the backhand side. The coaches are not seeing that. The one thing so I they're not to them,
0: seeing the GPA or even the major. No,
2: coaches don't have access. The other cool thing I, I think um, is that one of the things Susan just mentioned is that coaches only have access to student athletes' email addresses. Their cell phone number is not included in the portal. Um, and I, I think a really interesting point is that it was actually the student athletes um, who are part of the transfer committee um, that really designed the concept of the portal. They specifically asked that, that um, cell numbers not be included in the portal. Um, they did not want to be bombarded with text. They didn't want to be called all the time. They really they are the ones who really in many ways kind of helped us think about what should be in the portal and how should people have access to reaching out to student athletes. Um, so I think that's kind of a cool thing knowing that the student athletes and their voice was really part in shaping um, what, what you see in the portal and what coaches have access to. Um, the other cool thing that coaches do have access to, and this is true for compliance as well, is there is a data reports feature in the transfer portal um, that the membership can look at to see you know, um, activity in the portal, by the, at the sport level, by year to year. Um, so there, there are a lot of tools that are already built in to help people understand um, what's in the portal. Um, they can look at transfers you know, from one conference to another. That's visible um, to the membership. Um, That's not visible to the public, Um, but there are some powerful analytical tools built into the portal as well.
0: You know, one thing I want to clear up as well, Susan, this one-time transfer, uh, help me out here to educate people that it's a clean slate because we've seen this certainly this last season. Oh, he or she is on her third school, fourth school. Um, That passed, help me out if I'm right here, that that, it's a one-time transfer now even, you know, you may be on school three or four, um, but going forward, you can't not sit out on three or four. Is that correct?
1: Yes, you know, one-time transfer is just that. One time you can use that exception to be immediately eligible. If you're gonna transfer second, third time, um, then you're gonna have to look at, you know, what are the circumstances um, that, that are available to you to receive any other type of exception but when you're talking about the one-time transfer exception can only be used
0: once uh, in that athletic career. So for that being said, um, I would think that going forward, there will be a little bit of a settling down. We may not see as many athletes play at three or four schools like we're seeing now because they will have already used that one-time transfer and they would then have to sit out or apply for a waiver or an appeal is that correct
1: that, that is correct I mean you have to keep in mind too we haven't talked graduate um student so I was gonna get there yet and, yeah and so that potentially you know if, if the the fan out there is watching you know a, a game and sees that hey that student athlete was on that team last year this team now the third um you know at some point they're doing what they're supposed to do and graduate and then they may have an extra season remaining and could use that as a graduate student so, uh, Andy,
2: I just I right. want to clear up a misperception. I mean, there are not, um, you know, we have 500,000 student-athletes. There are not that, it's not a sizable number that are multi-year transfers. We, we just ran the data, um, and it's actually, it's only about, you know, if we look at just Division One student-athletes that are in the transfer portal, less than 5% of the student-athletes currently in the portal this year um, are, are those who are seeking multi-year transfers as an undergrad. So it's in a, in almost all sports, it's under 100. In many cases, it's under 10 people across the entire sport. So. I think anecdotally, I'm sure you and I could sit down and we could list off you know, five, 10, 20 student athletes that are multi-year transfers. But I think it's really important to, if you, if you take the 10,000 foot level, we're talking about a very, very small population. At the same time, they're highly visible. And so yes. the anecdote is definitely something we all can see and we can all come up with a name or two, um, but it is not something that we're seeing. 95% of student athletes who are entering the transfer portal are not multi-year transfers. So let's, I just think it's really important to be clear
0: about that great point there were just a couple of high profile teams absolutely of yep um, totally. all right one last thing before I get to post grads um, or graduate students May 1st May 1st is a deadline that's been out there but May 1st has always been sort of this date if you want to play in the fall and winter there are different dates during the year of when you need to be eligible for that following season so tell me about what May 1st means into the transfer portal of being eligible right away, uh, Susan and Lydia.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, that's, that's a, a, I would say, a misinformation too, because it doesn't mean that if a student athlete requests notification and transfer on May 2nd, that they can't transfer. Uh, that student athlete could still do that, but would not be eligible now for the one-time transfer exception. Um, so, you know, the deadlines that were established last year um, with the one time and they only apply to the one time transfer exception um, to, to use that exception for immediate eligibility. I mean, that's you know, th- those deadlines um, really were established to, uh, you know, maintain some control over the, the, the transfer environment for coaches and and to be able to distribute that athletic aid. Um, for those student athletes and for the student athlete to have you know a, a vision of where you know that they're going to attend the next fall um, so yeah the, the deadline is is, is fast approaching um, for uh, those sports that have the May 1st deadline uh, but it does not mean that a student athlete could not transfer it's just you cannot use the one-time
0: transfer exception. Right without obviously trying to go through some sort of appeal process and look I mean these institutions have their own deadlines of when tuition is due in August or July. So, I mean, you know, they have to obviously have their student body. So it's not just the coach that needs to know his or her roster by a certain date. I mean, the you know, these are massive institutions that need to know when their students are arriving. All right. So let's deal with graduates um, because this has also been an evolving uh, change in terms of graduate students being eligible right away and you know is the major there is the major not there and you know that that aspect of the transfer um, portal for lack of a better term where, where do the where do the graduate students they've got their degree at this institution now they have another year of eligibility what what's their path
2: yeah we we've definitely seen a real uptick um, you know particularly in in sports um, you know and many of our Olympic sports um, in students who do have that additional year of eligibility um, likely due to the the COVID know eligibility extension many of these students are pursuing um, pathways as as graduate transfers Um, if you look at that dashboard i was just talking about we actually break out for you you know every sport you can look at the total number of transfers um, both undergraduate and graduate and we see that you know many of our sports the numbers for undergraduate transfers look really similar in the most recent year to the previous year but the real growth was in those the graduate transfer opportunities um so and i think you know that's that's very similar. You know, thinking about how we would talk to an undergraduate in our family, um, you know, someone wrapping up their degree at one institution, we often encourage people um, to to pursue a graduate education at another school. It's just an, a new opportunity, a new chance to to be a part of a new campus, um, to learn from new faculty members. I mean, that's what you would typically counsel your cousin, your daughter. Um, you know. In your own family, Um, and so I think you know if student athletes are interested in using that opportunity and pursuing an education in another school. um, It makes perfect sense and then also continuing their competition, Um, so we did see a real uptick um, particularly um, in sports that haven't um, had a lot of growth in terms of um, graduate transfers Um, and we saw for, you know, overall, when we look at the data, you know, it's it's still a really tiny percentage of student athletes that pursue a graduate transfer opportunity. Um, historically, it's, it's been less, it's just around one half of 1% of all student athletes are graduate transfers. But of course, there is that, that larger um, group, particularly in men's basketball and football. So again, some of those some of those sports that are hyper-visible, I think are have perpetuated this idea that there's a ton of graduate transfers. Um, but I do think this COVID extension has will lead to growth in the graduate transfer space um, for the next few years as there is the additional year of eligibility um, for, for many of our student athletes.
1: Susan? Yeah, I really don't have a whole lot to add what Lydia said. I mean, about we, we, we are definitely seeing that increase in the graduate student participation. And we really can point to that extra season of competition um, in that year that uh, COVID offered that season to our student athletes.
0: All right, last two things, let you go here. Um, Number one, sports. I just wanna clear up this as well. There was a time where certain sports were segregated with different rules. Where are we right now in terms of men's and women's basketball, football, I think maybe it was ice hockey um, that, that had a little bit of a different set of rules. Uh, Susan? Yeah, well, where we're at, all, all of the sports do have the same rule now.
1: Um, they all have uh, the opportunity for the one-time transfer exception across the board um, for Division One. And, and one thing I want to highlight, too, because we've talked a lot about Division One because of the, the questions were associated with that. I mean, the transfer portal is used by Division One, Two, II, and Three member institutions, um, you know, they, they do have different set of, of, of legislation that's applied um, to their transfer situation. So just want to make sure because, you know, we did mention the the May 1 deadline, for example, where, you know, Division 2 has a different deadline. They have June 1 um, as their deadline. So there, there are different rules that come into play for different divisions. Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we were clear on that, not to confuse people. That it's a transfer portal used for um, all three divisions. It's just it started with Division One when Division One changed their legislation.
2: Um, it's not going to be a surprise. Um, you know, people have asked Susan and I forever. You know, when are we going to see what normal looks like in the portal? Um, and we. Originally, pre-pandemic, we said, "Oh, just give us two years, give us two or three years of good data." And then there was a pandemic that has has lasted for over two years, and so we're continuing to see um, that also kind of confound um, some of the some of the normal trends that we would expect to see in the transfer portal. And so I think that's. One of the challenges is that we all need to be patient um, when we're looking at you know, what, what does normal look like in terms of transfer, um, especially given additional changes in legislation like this opportunity for the one-time transfer exception. So there's there's just multiple you know, new factors that are shaking up the, the transfer landscape, which I know is putting a lot of people on edge, but um, in order to really see trends and have some good understanding of what's happening, we're gonna have to be a little patient. All
0: right, so for those that want to find this information, where do they go?
2: So if you're if you're interested in the new dashboard that's public facing and really talks about um, you know, the number of student athletes who enter the portal and then um, have success in transferring. If you wanna look at just the overall number of students who enter the portal and the months of their entry or the overall outcomes, um, that data is available on, on the nca.org slash research page. We do have a transfer page there. Um, but the other neat space that we've placed it is on the nca.org um, heading website
0: there is under the
2: student athlete tab, there is a section that says want to transfer. And this new dashboard is under the NCA resources, which I think is hopefully, you know, by being placed there, it's a really a nice way for both student athletes and their families to have access to that, that tool.
0: You get the last word, Susan.
1: Well, I, I think the last word is, um, you know, don't be alarmed by the number that you see entries into the transfer portal, because that is not the transfer number. Um, that's just those student athletes who have opened it up to discuss possible transfer with, uh, with coaches. Um, It's, you know, the actual matriculation number uh, that those are the student athletes who actually transfer, which is actually a small, much smaller number.
0: Well, this was great. Highly uh, informational, educational. I appreciate uh, Susan Peel and Lydia Bell for all of their uh, time and effort that they're putting into this um you know across all divisions as susan was saying as always you go to ncaa.org slash social series where all our social series are archived we're here every week diving into the big issues across the entire membership thanks for watching everyone